What's going on, everybody? It's your boy. Hardest part of the ring here. Back at you with a very, very special episode of The Apron Bump. We're going to be going back in time today, everybody. You know, there's so much shit going on in present day. It's a little overwhelming, honestly, and... You ever just get so overwhelmed with something that you just ignore it? Well, that's what I'm going to do for this podcast. Not only to ignore what's going on today, but to harken back to a simpler time. So, as some of you may or may not know, I am a 27-year-old. What does that mean? That means I grew up smack dab in the attitude era born in 1993 you know i was you know about 10 ish give or take a few years wait no no i wasn't i was like seven eight nine whatever whatever year you consider the attitude era i was still a young kid but still i was old enough to kind of know what's going on around me but still young enough to where wrestling was still legitimate to me you know These characters on TV, they were characters, but when I was watching it, you know, it was all real to me. You know, I'm sure a lot of you are in the same boat as me. You know, when you're young, watching wrestling, everything is, everything's amplified because you're not concerned about peeking behind the curtain. You're just watching the show for the show. You're enjoying the stories for what they are and not, you know, what's what's going on behind them like what why why the writing is how it is or or uh, who's getting the push who's getting the push brother weren't wasn't concerned about that i was not concerned about that back in the attitude era and was for sure not concerned about that during royal rumble 2001 which is the pay-per-view that we'll be covering today as you Probably noticed by the title of this podcast. But anyways, so just some background here. First of all, I just want to say that the WWE Network is a beautiful thing. I don't know if the, I don't know if it gets the praise that it deserves, but there is so, so much content on there. It's It feels almost criminal to just pay $10 a month for all this stuff. They have every Raw, every SmackDown, every pay-per-view that has ever occurred ever they even got some fucking sunday night heat some velocities some random stuff here and there but i bring that up because a few years ago i decided to myself that i'm going to go back and relive the attitude era i have all this content at my disposal so i might as well make use of it right so i started about the at the time when i started watching wrestling which was about 1998, so I felt a good time to start was the Raw after WrestleMania 1998. I believe that was the one where, um, where Stone Cold won the title for the first time from Shawn Michaels. So I started the Raw after that show. And I've watched every Raw, every SmackDown, every pay-per-view since then to where I'm at now, which is the beginning of 2001. And just so happens I'm recording this. At the beginning of 2020. So around the same time of the year that we're at today is where I'm at in my my Attitude Era binge, so to speak. So I thought, you know, because there's so much other content to watch nowadays, I can pretty much go through the Attitude Era in real time. Because, you know, just don't have time to just watch the Attitude Era stuff, you know? Point is, where I'm at in the Attitude Era binge is Royal Rumble 2001, which is my favorite Royal Rumble pay-per-view of all time. One of my favorite pay-per-views, period, of all time. Definitely, I mean, I would probably have to think about it, but I would say definitely top 10, maybe top 5, maybe even top 3, who knows, but I loved the Royal Rumble 2001. Really, you know, everybody everybody has, like, different timelines as far as what they consider the Attitude Era. Some think it started, you know, in 97 with, uh, with Sean and Brett. Some think it started whenever gold dust debuted some think it was when the mcmahon and austin rivalry started really doesn't matter it's a vague timeline it's a vague era but i feel like the peak of this era is the beginning of 2001 really like the the first half of 2001 is when everything was just running on all cylinders 
for the WWF. I mean, you know, we all talk about the Attitude Era and reverence, right? We all we all harken back to harken back to it as if it was all good. When in reality, there was a lot of a lot of dog shit happening back then too. I mean, you look in like like ninety eight, ninety nine. I mean, the main event storylines were super hot. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Like Austin, Taker, Rock, Mick Foley, you know, Triple H becoming a big star. Like the main event scene was red, red hot, and the crowd was always over for it, and the crowds were always sold out to see the main event. But everything else on the card, a lot of times, was kind of an afterthought. You know, you might have Stone Cold versus Undertaker in the main event, and you might have like a, I don't know, like a Kane versus fucking who knows, Triple H and the co-main event, but everything else is kind of just thrown together. You have like a D'Lo Brown versus Mark Henry or a or a Gangrel versus Steve Blackman type bullshit, which, you know, good characters, but nobody really... At the time, I don't think people really cared that much about the undercard of the WWF. People were literally buying the pay-per-view or buying tickets to see the main event, to see Stone Cold, to see Rock, to see Taker, you know, all those names I mentioned earlier. That was like 98, 99, in my opinion. A lot of the pay-per-views honestly weren't that great back then, which is something interesting that I uh, figured out as I went through all those pay-per-views, you know, from month to month. Um, I found myself, you know, I enjoyed it for the nostalgia, but for the most part, it was just there was a lot of dead air, a lot of dead space in those shows. But that all changed. That all changed around like 2000, right? Royal Rumble 2000. Yeah, you had Triple H versus Cactus Jack. You had that Royal Rumble match. You had the Hardys versus the Dudleys. You had a lot of things in there that built a a uh, a well-rounded show. It wasn't just a crescendo to a great thing, right? It was a from top to bottom, an entertaining product that they were putting out. And that momentum carried forward all the way through 2000 and pretty much all the way through 2001. Maybe it kind of tapered off towards the end there. But my point is, I'm kind of babbling a little bit, but the beginning of 2001, in my opinion, is that peak when everything was, everything was, like I said, it was just from top to bottom. You know, you had the main event storylines. You had a few, maybe had a few main event storylines, but you also had like the IC title. There was always something good going on with that. You had you had women's women's wrestling by no means is it like like when you compare it to today, it still seems very um almost insulting to women sometimes, but it was still it was getting TV time and it was getting effort by the writers to create storylines that actually had a, a long term arc to them, right? And we'll get more into that as we go through the show. Then you had the tag team titles, obviously. You had um the hardcore championship. You had everything from top to bottom. There was something for everybody. And that's the real main point here. And that's a, a mentality that can still apply to today's product. As long as there's something for everybody, I think you're golden. I think that's still a goal by today's companies, but I think it's something in execution kind of falls flat a lot of the times. But we're not here to talk about today's product. We are here. We are queer, and we are going to get into Royal Rumble 2001. So let's get started, shall we? Royal Rumble 2001. It's in uh, on January 21st, 2001, from New Orleans, Louisiana. And this show started out hot. You have the WWF Tag Team Championships on the line. You have the champions... Edge and Christian versus the Dudley Boys. Now, fun fact about the hardest part of the ring. My favorite wrestlers back then were the Hardy Boys. Love the Hardy Boys. And as a result of loving the Hardy Boys, I was also thoroughly invested in Edge and Christian and the Dudley Boys and all the interactions that those three teams had together. Um, You know, people... Of course, I love The Rock and Austin and all that kind of stuff. But what I was really, what I was really captivated by, was the tag team division here because it was kind of a new thing, not a new thing, but like there's for like I said for a couple of years there, the tag team titles were kind of, you know, you had the new New Age Outlaws and stuff like that, who were super over and super great. But 
the titles themselves kind of were on the back burner. It was really the characters that drove the tag team division and not, you know, the competition itself. And I felt this was kind of a a pivot um, in the sense that the tag team championships were uh, very, very sought for by many teams, um, but primarily the three teams that I mentioned before. And when people think of Edge Christian, the Dudleys, the Hardys, you think of the TLC matches, right? You think of the ladders, the tables, the chairs. You think of um, maybe you think of the Hardys versus the Dudleys table match. Maybe you think of the Hardys versus Edge and Christian in a ladder match. But I think one match that is very underrated is this opening match of Royal Rumble 2001 with Edge and Christian versus the Dudleys. You know, no ladders, no tables, no chairs. Well, there's some chairs, but we'll get to that. Point is, it's just a straight-up wrestling match, and it is outstanding. I mean, it's the golden era of tag team wrestling right here. Both of these teams, just they're, they're illustrating how to structure a tag team match. You know, the build to this match is fairly simple. I mean, Edge and Christian had uh, recently adopted the concerto, which is basically each Edge and Christian each have a chair, their opponent's in the middle, and then they both hit their opponent with the chair in the head at the same time. Kind of a recent thing. So they've kind of recently become the chairs team, right? You have the Dudleys as the tables team. You have the Hardys as the ladders team. Edge and Christian are the chairs team. I think it was like a week before, maybe a few days, but I think it was like on SmackDown before the Royal Rumble. They, they being Edge and Christian, attacked the Dudleys backstage and gave both Bubba and, Bubba and Devon a concerto, which was a, which is built as a very devastating move. And in theory, it should be. I mean, you're getting hit in the fucking head with two steel chairs, providing no resistance because you, you, your head has no room to give. Brutal. There's no way you can't get a concussion if that were to happen to you. And I mean, it's kind of jarring to watch now with all we know about concussions. It was almost, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't built as a casual thing. I mean, it was still a serious injury in the eyes of the commentators and in the eyes of you know how Bubba and Devon were selling it but it's crazy to consider like yeah I got a concussion three days ago but now I'm in a match like that would never happen nowadays so it's really interesting to see how things like that progress as time goes on but anyway so Bubba and Devon both have concussions going into this match quote unquote so the whole premise here for Edge and Christian is to work the head basic psychology they have an injury, so you pounce on it. So, match starts. Crowd is, first of all, crowd is red hot. Like, signs everywhere. You got horns. You got camera flashes. You know, they're booing when Edge and Christian get the offense. They are going nuts when the Dudleys start to regain momentum. Great shit all around. But the, the bulk of the match is Edge and Christian working on Devon. A lot of a lot of offense directed at the head. So you have you have both Bubba and Devon are, are just selling their heads. Maybe a little too much, honestly, but it was good. It was good for the time. And Devon eventually gets a moment of reprieve, and uh, you can like feel the desperation for Devon because Devon has to make the tag because he's super injured right now. Jr. is selling it. The crowd is selling it. Devon gets the tag, and the crowd goes fucking ape shit. Bubba gets in there, house of fire. Eventually, they do the spot, you know, the Bubba telling Devon to get the tables. The crowd's with them all the way, man. I mean, they are just they just want nothing more than for Edge or Christian to go through a table. They get cut off at the pass, of course, because it's a regular match, you know. You can't get disqualified with a table, right? You wouldn't want to do that if you're the Dudleys. I mean, you see, like, in the, in the final moments of this match how a tag team match is more than two singles matches happen, happening in parallel which is a lot of what you see nowadays. There's a lot of interactions between teammates in this match. Like you have uh, the Dudleys going for a 3D on Christian, right? Edge comes in, spears Bubba, interrupts the 3D and saves the match for them at that moment. Or the very end of the match where Edge and Christian are doing the, the waza headbutt, aiming for uh, Bubba's testicles, right? For one, it's just a cool, it's like a hilarious, we're using your move as just like a spit in the face. But Bubba's able to counter it into like a victory roll. And then Devon pushes uh, whoever it is. I think Devon pushes Christian into Edge's testicles. And then uh, they follow up with a 3D. Dudley's win. Crowd loves it. 
commentators loved it. I loved it when I was watching it. Awesome, awesome display of tag team wrestling by these two teams. Like I said, it's a match I think is very underrated. I think kind of flies under the radar with all the crazy shit these tag teams were doing back then. But definitely worth a watch if you want to see how how it's it's a kind of it's not a super long match either. Just a very well done, well structured match and very entertaining. And that's the most important thing in the end. After the match, they kind of show a an earlier today kind of backstage thing where a, a limo pulls up outside of the arena and doing the whole deal like, oh, who's in the limo? And then fucking Drew Carey walks out. I guess at this point, he's he has a, a pay-per-view coming up called uh, Drew Carey's Improv All-Stars. This is around the time where uh, Whose Line Is It Anyway was really big, one of my favorite shows. You also have the Drew Carey show, and so... Drew Carey has a pay-per-view coming up, so he's doing a little bit of press here by appearing on the Royal Rumble, which is kind of funny. Kind of a funny thing that I think people forget. Pretty entertaining, nonetheless. Then they have some, like, advertisements and stuff and other, like, kind of kind of commercials or whatever. Then they cut backstage to uh, Triple H and Stephanie's dressing room, where um, they're basically just kind of, like, hyping up Triple H's title match, which we'll talk about later, against Kurt Angle. And then as they're talking, Drew Carey shows up in their dressing room he's looking for vince he's looking for vince to talk about his pay-per-view with him and uh steph stephanie gets kind of annoyed so um she leads him to trish stratus's dressing room which stephanie and trish at this point are having like a uh kind of a cat fight kind of feud kind of a like who's the dominant female kind of rivalry here so stephanie is kind of like pawning off true to trish to kind of make it her problem you know what i mean and then uh, we see how that unfolds later. After that, you have the APA backstage, and then their little like makeshift, like a uh, poker room, with the whole uh, <laughs> like the just the, the standing door, but like no walls in it, like that. <laughs> Such like a, a low key hilarious thing back then. But you have the APA sitting at their table, drinking beer, playing poker, or whatever. And uh, basically, it's like a little. I'll show you, I'll show you yours if you show you mine kind of deal. Basically talking about their Royal Rumble numbers, uh, not their cocks, as uh, they they let you believe. Not their cocks, their Royal Rumble numbers. So they show each other their uh, theirs. They show each other theirs. Bradshaw has the higher number, so he kind of like laughs at Farouk because Farouk has like a really early number in the Rumble. Um, I, I kind of miss these kind of skits. I feel like you don't see them nowadays with, um, you know, picking their Royal Rumble numbers and like people like, like I remember back in the day, Eddie was like trying to, tra- Eddie Guerrero was like trying to trade with people because he got a really shitty number, you know, just stuff like this with the APA, just really entertaining stuff here. Um, you have Crash barging in, basically threatening both of the APA that he's going to throw them over the top rope. Just, just a lot of silly shit, but just really entertaining at the same time. And uh, like I said, there's something for everybody on this show. And just entertaining kind of skits like this makes the show great in conjunction with the other stuff that you find on the show. The the next thing on this show was not a funny skit, however. It was a brutal but also entertaining ladder match for the Intercontinental Championship. Chris Benoit versus Chris Jericho. This is my... When people ask me what's my favorite ladder match of all time, not including TLCs, my favorite ladder match of all time is this match right here. Jericho and Benoit, they had actually had a few uh, a few matches the previous year on pay-per-view. They had one at Judgment Day and then one at SummerSlam, I believe was a two out of three falls. And, uh, and watching those matches, it was weird because, you know, on paper, it's like, man, this is going to be a barn burner. But then you watch it and like the crowd doesn't care. Uh, the chemistry isn't really there between the two guys for whatever reason. Um, even though they had wrestled so many times previously in Japan and in WCW. For whatever reason, it wasn't clicking in 2000. But right here, Royal Rumble 2001, ladder match for the IC title. Everything fucking clicked. They were just on the same page here. They worked together really well and made a fantastic match here. Because, you know... I mean, the build to this match was pretty simple, right? It was pretty much... It was heavily based on the Intercontinental Championship. It was pretty much, uh, who's better? I think I'm better. I think I'm better. Let's let's settle it in a match right here, right? Kind of a, um, a Walls of Jericho versus Crippler Crossface. 
you know, you have guys, you know, in the build of this attacking each other with their various submission holds. So it's a very simple build, but that's really all you need for these two, right? Kind of just like a, like a, they don't like each other build. That's all it needed. So in this match, you have, um, so this is off the heels off of, you know, the Hardys and Edge and Christian and the Dudley boys kind of, um, implementing different high risk stuff. When it comes to ladders and tables and all that. Chris Jericho and Chris Benoit knew that they could not compete with that. If they were to have the same strategy and make in structuring the match. They weren't, you know, just doing crazy spots off the ladder the whole match. They were, um, they kept it more of a, uh, a gritty style. They weren't, they weren't using the, the ladders as, as uh, props. They weren't using it as a thing to jump off of. For the most part, they were using the ladder as a weapon, whether it was directly hitting each other with them, whether it was throwing each other into the ladder. They were basically the premise of this match was each man was trying to incapacitate the other so that they could not get up to stop them from climbing, climbing the ladder, which is ladder match 101. You don't see that a lot nowadays. You know, I know I, I rant all the time about ladder matches and how today they're kind of just spot fests with no story and no cohesion. All I ask you to do is watch this ladder match right here. This is everything that I want and need from a ladder match. You have you know, Chris Jericho is trying to put on the walls of Jericho to make Chris Benoit not be able to get up. If Chris Benoit cannot get up, then Chris Jericho could climb the ladder uninterrupted, grab the title, and win. Chris Benoit is doing the same thing to him, using the Crippler crossface. Both guys are using the ladder as a weapon. Both guys are using chairs as weapons. The goal here is to incapacitate your opponent so that they cannot get to their feet and stop you from climbing the ladder, grabbing the belt. It sounds mind-numbingly simple, but it's something that is just, for whatever reason, it's avoided nowadays. And... It is refreshing to watch this match and see what a ladder match can be. But that's not to say there weren't, you know, crazy spots in the match. I mean, there's a lot of just down and dirty brawling in the match. But you also have the spot with Chris Jericho applying the walls of Jericho to Chris Benoit at the top of the ladder, which is something I don't think had been done at that point. Basically have, like, Benoit wrapped around the top of the ladder and Jericho holding his ankles, wrapping his arms with his feet. With a crazy looking spot, the crazy walls of Jericho at the top of the ladder, dumping him on his head, and um, but that was not able to finish the match. And you have maybe the craziest spot in the entire match was something that sounds simple, but the way it was executed just made it look brutal. You had um, Jericho was on the outside of the ring, Benoit was on the inside. Benoit goes for a suicide dive, only to get stopped by a vicious chair shot by Jericho stopping Benoit in midair hitting him in the head in hindsight it's a little uh <laughs> it's a little sickening to see it's a little sad to see because you know these kind of spots is kind of what ultimately drove Benoit to do what he did but at the time shit it was fucking awesome man I mean fuck, look at him gets hit in the head fuck him um <laughs> but anyways so you have that spot you have Benoit doing a headbutt from the top of the ladder, missing Jericho, which, you know, stuff like that also contributed to Benoit's, you know, ultimate demise. But so you have those, you know, cool spots in the match, but you also have a cohesive story throughout the match. Ultimately, the end of this match comes when uh, Benoit's climbing the ladder and then Jericho stops him with a chair, hits him in the back of the hits him in the back with the chair twice. Uh, Benoit fights through it, kicks off Jericho, Jericho bounces off the ropes, and then knocks Benoit off the ladder, sending Benoit toppling to the outside. Now, uh, it's kind of, it seems, I was watching this back, and it was like, man, this is kind of like a simple spot to end the match. But, with, but like, the cool thing about it is, right, so in a ladder match, you have offense and you have defense. Offense, obviously, is you climbing the ladder trying to get the title. But you have the defense, which is the other guy trying to stop you from climbing the ladder. In this ending sequence, you had both of those. You didn't have just one guy laid out and have it just be a foregone conclusion, right? You had Benoit was, like, pretty hurt on the outside, but he was still, like, trying to get up, trying desperately. You could feel the desperation at the end of this match with Benoit trying to get up, trying to get back in the ring, but he just could not do it in time. And Jericho grabs the title, wins the match, new IC champion. Just awesome stuff. Awesome stuff from both men. 
watching it back, you know, everything held up as much as I thought it would. Such a great ladder match. Such a great match in general. And both of these guys, really at this point in their careers, are just revving up for what's to come. So good stuff all around. After that, you have uh, another backstage segment with Drew Carey. Uh, Drew is in Trish's locker room now. Um, if you remember before, Stephanie kind of pawned off Drew, took him to Trish's uh, locker room, and now uh, basically have Drew Carey hitting on Trish Stratus, which is just a a hilarious concept. You know, they're kind of back going back and forth, but uh, Trish says that she's involved with somebody who at this point is uh, Vince McMahon, kind of. But then Drew's like, oh, man, I have uh, I have two shows. Because he doesn't know it's Vince that she's involved with. So Drew's like, he has a funny line. He's like, I'm doing pretty well. I got two shows. Just doing his best. God bless him. But uh, it's not enough to swoon Trish, unfortunately. Uh, Vince walks in as they're talking. Uh, Drew asks Vince for advice on advertising his pay-per-view. Because, you know, Vince is the king of pay-per-view at this point. So Drew's trying to get his advice, trying to pick his brain a little bit. And then, um, you know, Vince can tell that Drew is kind of trying to hit on Trish, which is kind of stepping into his territory. So Vince basically tells Drew that he's in the Royal Rumble, you know, as kind of a Drew doesn't see it as punishment. But Vince knows that Drew is going to get his ass kicked if he steps in that ring with all those guys. So Vince tells Drew that he's in the Royal Rumble, but Drew doesn't want to do it at first. But basically, Vince kind of sways him by saying that it'll impress for one it'll impress the viewers and get them to tune into drew's pay-per-view but it'll also more importantly impress trish so a lot of motivation for the drewster here drew's in the royal rumble can't wait to see it after that you have uh china and billy gunn and a little backstage segment here basically the story here with china is that she's her and billy are feuding with the right to censor. And a few weeks ago, I believe it was Val Venus and Stevie Richards did a spike pile driver onto China, which looked devastating at the time. And basically they're selling that. I believe at this point, China did have neck issues, um, but this was kind of their way of writing her off TV. I say, I said a few weeks ago, I'm trying to think now it might've been like a few months prior, but they basically put China on the shelf with a neck injury. And this match at the Royal Rumble is her in-ring return, basically, at least in a in a prominent match. So China is going to be competing against Ivory for the women's championship later that night, and uh, Billy Gunn's basically questioning China's health and questioning whether she's ready to get back in the ring. China says she's healthy, but she's just saying that because she wants to get her revenge on Ivory and the right to censor here. So you have the match. China and Ivory both come out. I uh, I forgot how hot this feud was, honestly. I mean, the, between the video package before the match and the crowd reactions, this this feud was red hot, man. I mean, everybody hated, hated the right to censor. Like, you got to look at it in the lens of 2001 because the reason the Attitude Era was so successful and the reason it resonated with people so much is because it was just the culture of the time. You know, that whole culture, they loved... They loved the vulgarity. They loved the sex. They loved cursing. They loved violence. Between, you know, you, you saw it in music. You saw it in movies. You saw it in TV. I feel like there was no more prominent avenue for this culture than pro wrestling. And that's why, you know, the culture and wrestling, they just kind of blended here to create an era that is still looked very fondly at, you know, today, to this day. And um, so you have that that vulgar, that that attitude filled culture. And then you, ha- you have the right to censor coming in here and just putting a halt to it. The right to censor was kind of the counterculture in this sense and was a resistance to everything that the crowd liked about WWF. So it was just a perfect, perfect gimmick for this time great heels and, you know, just filled with a bunch of talented, talented guys uh, in that faction. Uh, the commentators sold it wonderfully. Even even King, the heel commentator, hated him. No one liked the right to censor. And that is a heel trait that may never be seen again, at least in this capacity. So the match starts, China versus Ivory, women's championship on the line. I mean, you look at China, 
you look at Ivory. I mean, I love Ivory. I think she's very underrated. I think she had a, a very crucial role in kind of spearheading the women's division back then in the late 90s early 2000s but you look at these two together and it's just a mismatch among mismatches i mean china had just been she was competing against jericho and eddie and benwall and all sorts of men china was facing men and she was holding her own against those huge men and now she's fighting little old ivory it's it's just there's no chance and that's basically the story of this match because you have china dominating early right she's basically just doing whatever she wants with Ivory. So a few minutes go by, China's doing all kinds of military presses and slams. Ivory's in the corner, and China goes for a uh, back handspring elbow in the corner. She connects, but then she topples to the floor immediately. Basically, what happened here is that she re-injured her neck, and uh, she is essentially paralyzed on the mat. So... Obviously, here, Ivory can just get the easy win. She retains her title, but the big story here is that did China come back too soon? Was this a good idea for her to get back in the ring so soon after her neck injury? Will she ever come back and wrestle again? That's basically what the viewer is left with as this match concludes. Um, and this, not only that, but it further, further solidifies the heat that the right to censor has. In this time, because everybody knows that China can beat Ivory, right? That's not even a question. But China's health is the only thing stopping her from that. So it really just frustrates the crowd here, really frustrates the viewing audience because you know China can beat her, but for some reason, China's health is just stopping her from from doing that. So good, good ending here. Um, kind of furthers the storyline because, you know, in the early 2000s, early 2000s, there was really no better women's rivalry than China and Ivory. So... The match was what it was. It, it was. it accomplished what it was supposed to accomplish. This storyline will continue in the, the months to come. Up next, you have the WWF Championship on the line. Triple H versus Kurt Angle. Um, at this point, Kurt Angle is like a year into his career, which is crazy to see the position he's in. I mean, he's won. Oh, he's already won every title. He won the King of the Ring. And he's the current WWF champion going in here defending against Triple H. But one thing you got to understand here is that the real feud here is Stone Cold versus Triple H. You know, because if you remember, you know, and I guess it was like late 99 when Stone Cold got ran over and then he was out for a year. He was out, you know, getting neck surgery. But, um, you know, once he came back, they had to figure out, you know, who to pin the... uh, the rundown by and ended up being Rikishi but then it kind of pivoted because you know Rikishi wasn't catching on like they thought he would so really it's they couldn't just say oh never mind it wasn't Rikishi driving the car but what they did was basically pinpoint Triple H as the uh, as the mastermind on the hit so essentially it was Triple H's idea to run over Stone Cold with a car so that's kind of um, to kind of catapult him towards the main event, you know, which when Stone Cold was gone, Triple H did help fill that spot. So that's basically the premise of Stone Cold versus Triple H. But here is kind of just a chapter in that, right? They've been building up. It was really it was a really weird build to this to this pay-per-view as far as the WWF title is concerned, because really all the build was Stone Cold and Triple H. I mean, you have Stone Cold. You have Stone Cold in the in the in the Royal Rumble later. So the whole the whole buildup was these two can't touch each other, and if they do, either Steve Austin will lose his Rumble spot, or Triple H will lose his title match. And then you kind of have Kurt Angle as kind of the third wheel in the in the matter. Um, even you know below that, you have Trish and Stephanie are like it might not even be Stone Cold and Triple H is the real feud. The real feud here might be Trish and Stephanie. Because you obviously obviously have Steph with Triple H as his wife, but then Kurt kind of recruits Trish to be his manager, kind of to be in his corner in this match. So you have all the animosity between Trish and Steph because they're competing to be you know the dominant fe- the dominant female in the WWE. You know Steph is already the the daughter of Vince McMahon, but then Trish is trying to slide in and be kind of Vince McMahon's little side piece. So a lot of some of it's kind of cringeworthy, some of it's hilarious, some of it's kind of just whatever, but you have um, Stone Cold versus 
Triple H, you have Trish Stratus versus Stephanie McMahon, and somehow we arrive at a WWF championship match between Triple H and Kurt Angle. Who knows, but whatever. These two are huge stars during this time, so it's a very credible match nonetheless. Um, the match itself was kind of okay. It was very slow at a lot of points because there wasn't a lot of personal vendetta you know, I mean, there wasn't a lot of heat between these two guys specifically. I mean, there was a lot of wrestling in this match, a lot of chain wrestling, a lot of like, you know, normal stuff you would see in a match, but the crowd wasn't super into it. Um, they were more concerned about waiting for Steph and Trish to kind of fight, which ultimately they did. Towards the end of the match, Trish and Stephanie kind of get at it, get at it on the floor, kind of rolling around like all over the announce table on the floor and then Vince comes out tries to break it up he kind of pulls Trish off off of Stephanie brings her to the back and Stephanie chases them it's a whole thing crowd fucking loves it I don't know if this ages well but it's still hilarious to see if nothing else great nostalgia and just a lot of silliness which is Kind of what this was meant to be, and it was just very entertaining, very entertaining. But the match is still going on at this point, right? So Triple H and Kurt kind of start going back at it again. And then who shows up? None other than Stone Cold Steve Austin comes out, hits Triple H with the title belt, gives him a stunner. Kurt Angle picks the bones, pins Triple H, gets the win, and retains his title. So now you have... Angle is champion, potentially going into WrestleMania, and then you have Triple H and Steve Austin continuing their feud, their red-hot feud at this point, um, which will culminate at the next pay-per-view. So, really, this title match was less of a match and more of a chapter in uh, in the build in the build to Austin versus Triple H and in the build towards Trish and Stephanie. So, some good stuff here, but it was a little longer than I needed needed it to be. But it is what it is. After that, it cuts to The Rock backstage getting interviewed. Man, no one will ever be as over as The Rock was here, man. He was just... I mean, he's not underrated by any means. People always say that The Rock is one of the best on the mic. But you really don't understand it until you take yourself back and just fucking watch some of his interviews, man. He had the crowd in the palm of his hand the entire time. So he's basically getting interviewed here. He's he, The Rock is in the Royal Rumble, so he's building up to the Royal Rumble match. He's he's kind of uh, solidifying what eight-year-old hardest part of the ring was thinking at the time, right? Because in my mind, anybody could win the Royal Rumble. It could be uh, it could be Scotty Tuhati. It could be Val Venus. It could be Jeff Hardy. I was rooting for Jeff Hardy personally, but. The Rock here is basically saying that that uh, it, it could come down to anybody. It could come down to The Rock and Bull Buchanan. It could come down to The Rock and Perry Saturn. It could come down to The Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin, like that whole line he had there. But then he goes on to establish, between this promo of The Rock and the, uh, the video package that uh, comes up after his promo, the favorites of this match are kind of established. You know, you have either it's going to be either Stone Cold, it's going to be The Rock, Undertaker, Kane, or Rikishi. It's really those five guys that it comes down to that if you're a smart fan at the time, you know it's going to be one of those five, but meet little naive, hardest part of the ring. Thought it could be anybody, so who knows, right? So after that, you have the Royal Rumble match itself, which, like I said, I mean, this whole pay-per-view is my favorite. If we're looking at Royal Rumble as a pay-per-view, I would say it's a pretty, uh, there's competition between this one and 2000, but um, as far as the Royal Rumble match itself, I think uh, this is easily my favorite of all time. So it starts out with Jeff Hardy and Bull Buchanan, you know, they're kind of going at it. Then um, Matt Matt Hardy comes out, and uh, Matt and Jeff kind of team up. They eliminate Bull Buchanan. They uh, they eliminate Farouk. Then they fight each other, which is a cool thing to see. I, I think they had they had had like one match since they had been teaming against each other, but uh, it was it was still a rare thing to see the Hardys fighting each other. So you had that whole deal, and then as they're fighting, Drew fucking Carey comes out. Man, poor luck of the draw for Drew Carey, man. Comes out like number five or f- six or whatever it is, and but the Hardys are still fighting each other. Because at no point does Drew actually get physical. I mean, he's not going to be out there taking bumps or anything. WWF is not going to take on that liability of Drew uh, inevitably hurting himself if you were to do a her and Kenrana of some sort. But uh, the Hardys actually end up eliminating each other at the same time, leaving Drew Carey in the ring all by himself. And King had a funny thing on commentary. He was like, 
man, if this was the end of the match, Drew Carey would be heading to WrestleMania, which is hilarious to think about. But So you have Drew Carey in the ring by himself, waiting for the next entrant. And who's that next entrant? No other than Kane. Holy shit. I th- there was also a backstage segment earlier this night, which I uh, neglected to talk about. It was when uh, Drew Carey was kind of getting ready for his match. You know, he's in the little tracksuit getup. He's sitting in the locker room, tying his shoes or whatever. And then fucking Kane walks next to him. And Drew looks up at him. He's like, hey, man, who's the goofy guy in the mask? It's just a hilarious delivery of it. Doesn't understand who Kane is. Doesn't understand what Kane's capable of. But as soon as Kane comes out to that ring and faces Drew Carey, Drew Carey all of a sudden knows that he's in deep shit. Starts offering Kane money. Offering him whatever it takes for him not to hurt him. And then at that point, Raven comes out, hits Kane. Kane Kane has Drew Carey goozled for a choke slam. Raven comes out with a kendo stick and smashes Kane in the back with it. Drew Carey scurries away, jumps over the top rope, eliminates himself. Bada bing, bada boom, I'm out of here. So good night for Drew Carey. He was able to advertise this new pay-per-view. Was able to get in the ring. Seemed like he had a good time doing it. A lot of hilarious stuff from Drew Carey here. Then, uh, like I said, Raven comes out with a kendo stick, which prompts the uh, the hardcore kind of section of this rumble. Kind of a hardcore rumble in the beginning uh, little part of this. You, cause you have Raven coming out with a kendo stick. Then you have like you have Al Snow coming out. He throws a bunch of weapons in the ring. Steve Blackman comes out. He does all all the stuff he does with weapons. He has his little nunchucks or whatever the fuck. Yeah, Perry Saturn, Grandmaster Sexy, like all these guys that are like involved, like in the lower tier of the roster that are kind of thrown in the hardcore matches. This is kind of the hardcore match of the night, right? Because every pay-per-view has a hardcore match or a hardcore segment, and there wasn't really time for one outside of the Royal Rumble match. So fuck it, throw it in the Rumble match itself. So the ring is just littered with weapons and, and the ring starts to fill up. Everybody's ganging up on Kane because Kane is kind of established as the dominant guy in the ring but eventually as uh, jr said kane went crazy and took a uh, a trash can lid smashing everybody that he saw throws everybody over the top rope throws like six or seven guys over the top rope at once and then uh, all of a sudden kane is the only one in the ring and then who comes out next is none other than the honky tonk man hilarious Honky Tonk Man comes out with his guitar, doing his little dance, little his his all his whole get up. Grabs a mic, gets in the ring, starts singing his song, and Kane is having none of it. He uh, just rips the guitar out of his hand, smashes him in the head with it. Shards of fucking guitar go everywhere. Just awesome looking bump. Then uh, Honky Tonk Man gets thrown out. Sorry, to, sad to see him not main event WrestleMania. I think him and The Rock would have been a barn burner. Nonetheless, wasn't meant to be. Honky Tonk Man gets thrown out. Kane's again the only one in the ring. Next entrant, The Rock. Crowd goes wild. Rock and Kane, you know, they go back and forth. Now we have two huge stars in the Rumble, two of the favorites in there at once. The ring starts to fill up again after that. Um, you have like Taz coming in for like 20 seconds. Yeah, like Albert, Bradshaw, Goodfather, Hardcore Holly, like a bunch of guys that are like not main eventers by any stretch of the imagination, but are all like intimidating looking guys. You know what I mean? Like they're all like big. Like if you if you're not thinking about who's over, who's getting pushed, if you're just looking at it, like if you're looking at it in the lens that I was looking at. I'm looking at it like, oh man, these are all huge guys. They could all easily win this match. I mean, if, especially if they band together, they can throw out Kane and either one of these guys. They're all tough looking huge dudes. They can all win. So it's like the, you have like those type of guys coming out. And then you have um, just another note. You have K-Quick come out, also known as R-Truth. And some people forget how long R-Truth has been with that company, man. I know he went to TNA for a little bit, but we have R-Truth here in 2001 which is almost 20 years ago and motherfucker looks the exact same he moves today our truth moves almost as quick as he did back then he's just as ripped if not more is he's ageless our truth is a absolute treasure as we saw with this segment with Brock Lesnar uh, a couple days ago on raw our truth is a treasure he is ageless our truth is the man an unsung hero 
in wrestling, if I do say so myself. But uh, K-Quick's run in the Rumble doesn't last too long because after that, the Big Show comes out. And Big Show, so I guess he had been on the shelf for a few months making his return here. Also funny that he just made his return in 2020. Um, so I guess R-Truth and Big Show have something in common because they both have crazy longevity in the company. Big Show comes out, starts choke slamming everybody. This is like peak Big Show here. Just one arm choke slamming all these masses of humanity. Tosses K-Quick out, throws him like goddamn 20 feet over the ropes. Big Show's not really eliminating a lot of people, but he's choke slamming everybody, right? He goes to choke slam The Rock, however, and The Rock fights back, ends up eliminating the Big Show pretty quickly after he came in the match. Big Show is none too pleased. Pulls the rock out, choke slams him through the announce table. The rock is laid out for the time being, and he'll stay there for a while. Big Show's pissed. Rock's dead. What's next? What's next? The Undertaker. Undertaker comes out. The whole story here with The Undertaker is that him and Kane have had a, uh, a back-and-forth relationship over the past few years. Obviously, you have Kane debuting as Undertaker's brother, they have a brutal feud against each other. They're lighting each other on fire. They're burying each other alive, etc., etc. All the normal stuff you do with your brother, right? But they've kind of haven't interacted too much since then, since those like early days of Kane and Undertaker. Now it's like, okay, do we? Uh, are we still adversaries, or are we going to embrace our brotherhood and team up to eliminate everybody? Which is ultimately what they do. You know, they eliminate anybody else in the ring. Kane and Undertaker just destroy them. Once they are the only two in the ring, they have like a little stare down moment. And then, uh, <laughs> so yeah, the two of them in the ring. Who comes out next? Scotty Too Hottie. Scotty Too Hottie gets in there, just beats the shit out of both. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Scotty gets fucking obliterated immediately, gets thrown out. Once again, Taker and Kane are the only guys in there. Up next is Stone Cold Steve Austin, baby. Austin comes out looking mad as hell, looking intense as hell, about to get in the ring, about to kick some ass, and then Triple H comes up behind him and just blindsides him. Because, you know, Austin cost Triple H his match earlier in the night, so Triple H is getting his revenge. You would have thought Stone Cold would have seen that coming, but who am I to judge? Um, Triple H and Austin fight on the outside. Ultimately, Triple H gets the upper hand and just leaves Austin as a bl- in a bloody pool on the ground out by the uh, out by the entranceway. So yes, Stone Cold is basically incapacitated, but The Rock now is back in the ring and he is fighting Undertaker and Kane by himself, which is a uh, uh, in- interesting strategy on The Rock's part. But nonetheless, so now we're getting towards the end of the match and. You pretty much just have the big stars. You have Kane, you have Undertaker, you have The Rock. Uh, Billy Gunn comes out, who is kind of in the midst of a push at this point. You have um, Rikishi as number 30 coming out. And you have the returning Haku, who is... uh, Him and Rikishi are basically a team at this point now. So, yeah. So pretty much at the end of this match, you have all guys that could... Maybe other than Haku, but Haku is basically just a side sidebar of Rikishi. Other than that, you have pretty much all these guys could potentially win this match. You have all the favorites in the match at once. Austin eventually makes his way back in to the ring himself, just uh, pouring blood, but he's back in the ring. And uh, eventually you have a cool little moment where uh, Rock and Austin have a little face-to-face showdown. A little bit of foreshadowing for what's to come at WrestleMania. But you have Rock and Austin going at it for a little bit. And as they're going at it, trying to eliminate each other, Kane comes in, tosses both of them. He tries to toss both of them out. But uh, Austin hangs on while Rock gets eliminated. So at the end of the match, you have Austin and Kane. You have the top guy in the company versus the top guy in this match. Because at this point, at this moment, and at this moment in time, there is no more dominant figure in the WWE than Kane. Kane has, because he set the record for most eliminations in one Royal Rumble match, a record that a record that wasn't broken until a few years ago when Roman Reigns broke it, but you have Kane as this dominant brooding figure, and you have Stone Cold, who is just the, the top guy, the face of the company. These two guys are going at it to see who goes to WrestleMania. 
Stone Cold eventually hits Kane in the chair a few times, clotheslines him over the ropes. Stone Cold Steve Austin is your winner of the 2001 Royal Rumble match. Awesome stuff here. I mean, Austin had already won a few Rumbles in his career, but there was just no other way to go. Austin had to be in the main event of WrestleMania, and he would be. So, a lot of stuff going on in this match. Hard to condense it to not, you know, go over every detail of it or anything, but loved, loved this Royal Rumble match, and I loved this whole pay-per-view in its entirety. Um, From top to bottom, you had tag team matches, you had the ladder match, a good women's angle, you had um, Drew Carey, you had the Royal Rumble match. Good stuff all around. This pretty much exemplifies why WWF was so hot at the time. Yeah, WCW was dying off. I mean, it was like three months away from getting bought out. WWF was the the top top dick in town, as they say. Running on all cylinders. Everything was working. Every show was sold out. Every star was over. It was awesome at the time. And it was awesome going back and watching it in 2020. So... With that, that concludes the uh, the Royal Rumble 2001. And um, like I said, I'm kind of going through all this stuff in real time. So sometime next month, I'll be taking a look at No Way Out 2001, which is another great show. Um, so sometime next month, I'll be putting out a review of that show. I know No Way Out isn't a pay-per-view anymore, but somewhere within like the four or five pay-per-views in February, I'll throw it out there. And I can't wait. There's a lot of good stuff on that show as well and a lot of cool things to revisit. So uh, thank you guys again for watching, for downloading. Uh, Please do not forget to give me a follow. Even if you don't listen, just follow me or give me a rating or uh, a review or uh, suck on my nipple a little bit, you know, whatever you want to do. So anyways, that's all I got for you guys today. Don't just get hard. 